Welcome to Faithful Sayings, a podcast of the Olson Park Church of Christ. For a few minutes, let's talk about God's Word. I'm Kyle Pope, preacher at Olson Park. Thanks for joining us. Since I was young, I've always loved history. I know not all people are this way. To some, it is a boring and dusty recollection of times no longer relevant to our own. To me, it has always been a glimpse into another world. It is the closest we can come to seeing an alien, an unknown place far different from anything we know, but inextricably linked to why we are what we are. The past is the foundation of why we think, speak, and live the way we do, whether we even realize it or not. In Peter's final letter, which the Holy Spirit has preserved, he appeals to us to appreciate the value of history. But for Peter, it is not because of what history can show us about ourselves or some distant civilization, but what it can show us about God, the consequence of sin. How can we know that there is a consequence to sin? Have you ever thought about it? If you look around at things in the present, it's hard to see this. Some years ago, someone on the other side of the country apparently got the number for my debit card. I'm told that people sell these numbers and make duplicate cards and then use them to purchase whatever they wish. By the time we realized what had happened, the culprit had made about $400 in purchases. When we discovered this, the card was canceled, the bank credited the money back to my account, but for all I know, the person who did this just went on with his or her life with no penalty free to steal someone else's identity in the future. From what we can see in the present, it's hard to always know, as God warned Israel, that human beings can be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, verse 23. But here's where Peter shows us that an appreciation of history can provide us with this assurance. Peter starts with the problem of false teachers. Unfortunately, there have always been those who twist and corrupt sound teaching. Peter tells us in the past, there were also false prophets among the people, and then tells us, sadly, there will be false prophets among you, 2 Peter 2, verse 1. False teachers don't just do harm to themselves. When they are able to bring in destructive heresies, 2 Peter 2, verse 1, unfortunately, many will follow their destructive ways, 2 Peter 2, and verse 2. As a result, not only do they bring on themselves swift destruction, 2 Peter 2, verse 1, but they also cause the way of truth to be blasphemed, 2 Peter 2, and verse 2. Why does anyone ever alter and pervert the truth of God's word? Peter says the problem is covetousness, 2 Peter 2, verse 3. People want it to be different than God has said, so they change it and distort it until it looks like they want it to. Is there a consequence for this spiritual crime? The Holy Spirit says, For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. 2 Peter 2 and verse 3. He then offers three examples from history to prove that God's judgment is working and wide awake, even though we may not always see it in the present. Number one, angels who sinned. Peter first appeals to an incident that Scripture tells us very little about. He speaks of angels who sinned, whom God has cast down to hell, 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. While most English translations use the word hell here, the Greek word is tartarus, which Thayer tells us was 
quote, regarded by the ancient Greeks as the abode of the wicked dead, unquote, from the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. While Greek mythology had many fanciful stories about this place and the false god it associated with it, Liddell and Scott tell us that in latter usage it came to refer to the netherworld generally from the intermediate Greek-English lexicon. It is in this sense that Peter uses it in the only example of its use in the New Testament. It is roughly synonymous with the term Hades used frequently in the New Testament, but more strictly associated with that part of Hades that Jesus describes as torments in Hades, Luke 16, verse 23. This is not final punishment or hell, because Scripture tells us that it will not be until final judgment that death and Hades deliver the dead who are in them, and are then both cast into the lake of fire, which is called the second death, Revelation 20, verses 13 through 14. Peter tells us these angels are bound in chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, Second Peter 2, verse 4. Jude speaks of this same incident, referring to the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, whom God has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, Jude 6. What was their sin? We don't know. We are told simply that they did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. What we do know is that God did not spare the angels who sinned, 2 Peter 2, 4. In other words, if angelic beings who do not follow God's word are called to account, we can be assured that those who sin in this life will be as well. Number two, the world before the flood. Not only did God not spare angelic beings who sinned, but also he did not spare the ancient world when he brought in the flood on the world of the ungodly, Second Peter 2 and verse 5. Peter here appeals to the worldwide flood brought upon man because it had come to the point that the wickedness of man was great and throughout the earth every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6, verse 5. In that great act of judgment, only eight souls were saved. In his first epistle, Peter called his readers to remember this ominous moment because of what it parallels about baptism by which one may be saved through water, 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21. In the next chapter of this epistle, Peter will return to this great act of judgment, speaking of the time when the world that then existed perished being flooded with water, 2 Peter 3 and verse 6. When souls ignore the fact that they will one day face final judgment, Peter says they willfully forget the realities of the earth's creation and past destruction, Second Peter 3, verses 5 and 6. Why does it matter if one accepts a view that says God did not create the world in six days, but brought man into existence through some system of theistic evolution? What is the danger of rejecting that there was a worldwide flood that demonstrated God's past judgment on man? Peter shows us that understanding what God will do to the wicked in the future is demonstrated by looking at what God did in the past. It used to be that man could look at the presence of fossilized sea life all over the planet and remember God's judgment. Is it any wonder that those who reject a belief in the worldwide flood usually also reject a belief in a coming final day of judgment? Number three, Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Peter's final example concerns the cities of the plain when God turned Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, having condemned them to destruction. 2 Peter 2 and verse 6. Scripture tells us that in the days of Abraham and his nephew Lot, God declared the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, proclaiming that their sin is very grave. From the behavior of its people when the angels came to visit Lot, we know this included homosexuality. But we should not imagine that this was the only sin that led to its destruction. Jude tells us they had given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, Jude 7. This description of sexual immorality involving, quote, strange flesh from the Greek sarkos heteras, literally other flesh, according to Campbell, Darby, Green, and Young, could have included all types of sexual sin ranging from adultery, homosexuality, pederasty, to bestiality. When Lot first moved to live among them, this region was well-watered everywhere, beautiful and flourishing like the garden of the Lord, Genesis 13 and verse 10. Now we believe that the site where these cities once stood rests under the southern basin of the Dead Sea, the lowest place on the planet, in a desolate and barren desert. What does this have to do with us today? Peter says God made them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. 2 Peter 2, verse 6. In other words, we should look through the window of history and see in God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah the assurance that he will one day bring judgment on all men. These three great moments in history teach us two powerful things about God. Peter started his reference to angels with the words, For if God, 2 Peter 2, verse 4, but did not finish his thought until after his reference to Sodom and Gomorrah five verses later, concluding, Then God knows how, 2 Peter 4, verse 9. These great judgments of history teach us, first, that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation, 2 Peter 2, verse 9. Although those faithful to God may not see how it is that God's judgment against the wicked has not been idle and their ultimate destruction does not slumber, examples of the salvation of men like Noah and Lot show that God's people can stay faithful and God is with them no matter how bad things may get. But not only does God know how to deliver the godly, but he also knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, Second Peter 4, verse 9. When the wicked die, they, like the angels who sinned, will face confinement under punishment. Jesus taught this of the wicked rich man. When he died, he was in a place of torment within Hades, Luke 16, verse 28, while the beggar, who was also in Hades, was comforted. Luke 16, verse 25. What does this mean to me? So are you now persuaded to love the study of history? If not, I hope you can at least see its value. Particularly because of the fact that Peter's warnings are not to false teachers alone. They are to us. We can so easily be moved to walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. 2 Peter 2, verse 10. We can so easily come to despise authority, 2 Peter 2 and verse 10. We want to do what feels good to our flesh. We want to be autonomous, refusing to yield to God's word or godly ordained authority set over us. It's easy to say to ourselves, 
No one can tell me what to do. We may, like the false teacher, speak evil of what they do not understand, unaware that in doing so we, like them, will perish in their own corruption. 2 Peter 2, verse 12. We, like the world around us, can come to have eyes full of adultery, living in such abandon that it is almost as if we cannot cease from sin. 2 Peter 2, verse 14. What then? Where do we stand? One of the greatest destructive heresies this world has ever known has come in the form of a doctrine known as eternal security, or more commonly, once saved, always saved. It persuades those who believe in Jesus that regardless of whether they have fully obeyed God's word or not, if they have ever attained any type of belief in Jesus, regardless of whether they strive to live faithfully to God's word or not, once they are saved, they are, quote, always saved. Peter offers some of the most powerful refutations of this false doctrine ever written. He speaks of such false promises as great swelling words of emptiness, by which the false teacher may allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Second Peter 2, verse 18. Doctrines such as this, Peter says, allow the false teacher to promise them liberty, when in fact those who would accept such a view are slaves of corruption. Second Peter 2, verse 19. Peter says plainly, that if people, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that is, they are saved. We must remember Peter began this epistle by speaking to those who may have grace and peace as a result of the knowledge of God and of Jesus, Second Peter 1, verse 2, by which they have all things that pertain to life and godliness, Second Peter 1, verse 3, being partakers of the divine nature in a condition in which they had escaped the corruption that is in the world, Second Peter 2, verse 14. In other words, he is talking to saved people. It is to these people freed from sin that he declares that if they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Second Peter 2 and verse 20. Let's think about this. What were they in the beginning? They were lost. What is their condition if they become entangled and overcome in sin? Peter says their condition is worse for them than the beginning. Why worse? Probably because now their condition is not one of ignorance, but rebellion and rejection. He continues, For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. 2 Peter 2 and verse 21. It is a lie to teach people that once in Christ, it is impossible to ever sin in such a way that we can be lost. Yes, we are utterly and absolutely dependent upon God's mercy and grace for salvation. But God's grace, as Peter tells us, teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. It is our duty to obey. God's grace is not a license to sin. We must see in God's judgments and deliverance in the past 
the motivation and assurance that moves us to look to the future with obedience and hope. Thank you for listening. To learn more about our work, visit olsonpark.com. If you're in Amarillo, Texas, come worship with us at 4700 Andrews Avenue in Amarillo, 79106. And please tune in again to Faithful Saved.